Getting sober requires a lot more than mind over matter, a lot more than willpower. It's about leveraging the support around you. People in recovery typically need a mix of medical help, emotional support, and changes in lifestyle to manage their addiction, not just mental determination. As both a therapist and someone embracing the recovery lifestyle, there's one tool I always recommend to people needing extra accountability, Soberlink. Soberlink is a high-tech breath analyzer system designed to help you get and stay sober. And here's why I love it. You'll test the same day every day, eliminating testing anxiety. Friends and family receive instant test results, helping you rebuild trust and preventing relapse. Accountability is a part of that, and it's something to really be embraced. Devices have built-in facial recognition, so your support circle knows you're testing, and tamper-resistant sensors flag any attempts at trying to beat the system, so your sobriety is never questioned. So let 2024 be your best year yet. Visit Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M to sign up and receive $50 off your device. That's Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M. And let accountability be your guide. All right, everyone, welcome to the Addicted Mind podcast. This is episode 77 my name's Dwayne Osterland, and I'm your host. I'm also the founder of Novus Mindful Life Institute Family Counseling and Recovery Center in Long Beach, California. If you or anyone you know is struggling with any of life's challenges, reach out to us. You can find more information about us at theaddictedmind.com forward slash help. Also, I've started a new endeavor, and that is called Share Your Story. If you go to addictedmind.com, there is a button on the side of the website that allows you to leave a 90-second audio clip. If this fits for you, what I'm looking for is voices of people who have been in the trenches of recovery, whether you're a loved one or struggled with addiction yourself. And what I want to know is the one thing that has helped you the most in your recovery and what you would tell someone else who is struggling. If that's something that fits for you and feels right and you'd like to share that story, I would love to hear it. And I'm going to be looking into featuring those clips on the beginning of the Addicted Mind podcast right here in this section. I really want to hear the voices of everyone out there who has such wisdom from going through this process and sharing that and helping in the stigma of addiction so that other people who might be listening will have the courage to reach out. So if that fits for you and you want to share your story, go to the website, addictedmind.com and do that. Also, if you are enjoying the Addicted Mind podcast, please rate and review us in iTunes. That really does help get us a lot of exposure. And if you have a friend that you think would benefit from the Addicted Mind podcast, please share the podcast with them as well. Also, don't forget, you can join our Facebook group. Just go to Facebook and type in the Addicted Mind podcast and click join. And you can continue the conversation online there as well. All right. So today's guest is Dave Jansa, and he is going to talk about a part of addiction treatment that sometimes is often missed. And that's the people who are struggling with addiction, but not necessarily have hit that 
what I would say, the mythological rock bottom of addiction. So people that have problematic drinking, but maybe they don't have all the consequences yet, all the big consequences anyway, but they realize that they have a problem. And so he talks about how he helps people do that, get through that, and offers peer coaching that enables people to start to get that help and maybe change their thinking about it and change their addictive process before they face those deep consequences. So I really enjoyed the conversation and I hope you guys enjoy it as well. Let's go ahead and start this episode. All right, everybody, welcome to the Addicted Mind podcast. My guest today is Dave Jansa from We Face It Together. And Dave, welcome to the podcast. Tell me a little bit about yourself. Thank you, Dwayne. I will. So again, my name is Dave Jansa. I'm 64 years old. I was born and raised in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. My history with addiction comes from a very, very addicted family, you might say. A big family, eight siblings, five of us currently abstinent from alcohol. So that was my upbringing. Of course, that really didn't come to light until I was older and in the midst of it all. I started drinking alcohol quite heavily in high school, like most people that develop these problems, you know, in your adolescence, heavy marijuana smoker. Right. It curtailed my education at high school. Uh, When I hit college, I just crashed out after a semester. I went back to work full time. So I'm not formally educated in the field at all. At 30, I had abstained from marijuana probably just because I got sick and tired of it. What didn't do anything for me probably mid, late 20s. Right, right. Early 30s, I decided on my own, after viewing what two of my brothers had gone through, it just sort of made sense to me that I was a lot like them in a lot of ways, and it would benefit me to also abstain after many, many attempts at moderation. Right. It took with me right away, 32 years now, I believe, alcohol-free. I dabbled in marijuana for about 10, 15 years after that once in a while, Still never did anything for me after some point in time. So I've been 15, 17 years uh, drug-free, you might say. At, I don't know, somewhere in my mid to late 40s, I always just describe myself, Dwayne, as somebody who became intensely curious. And that curiosity with the advent of the internet in the early 90s led me to be able to just immerse myself in what was a very confusing landscape for me. What did I go through? Why did my brothers go through? Why were there so many people in my life that had addiction issues? My father-in-law was also a problem drinker and a brother-in-law and co-workers. And, and I just saw all of these transformations or lack thereof in all these people in my life. And I simply just, I became so immersed and so curious that I retired early from a really good position in sales that I'd had for a long, long time and just sort of threw myself at the world of addiction. And right about that time, Face It Together was emerging, a local community organization who sort of basically said to the community, we don't know what we want to do, but we want to do something. And that was just my alley. So I threw myself at them and started volunteering. And as it turns out, Face It Together was, is and was an extremely innovative organization that was breaking down barriers and doing things differently. And it, it just fit me and I've been with them ever since. So in a way, your story is a little bit different than, you know, I would say the addiction mythology 
out there that you hit this big rock bottom and everything goes just to hell and it's horrible and it's disastrous. In some ways, your life wasn't that way. But, you know, I was reading a little bit on your website as well. It wasn't that way, but you said, you know, I need to change this. Yeah. And I think it could be one of the biggest flaws in a system that's so flawed is that our entire culture and even some people that are in the addiction care world are sitting there saying, you're not sick enough yet. Right. You know, right. Yeah. Here's the signs to look for when it's time to reach out. Like you said, your life is crashed. It's in the toilet. Okay. Now it's time to go get help. That's ridiculous. Right. Like why wait? (laughs) Why not just go get help now? I've said many, many times I was so lucky. I have a couple of brothers that are intelligent guys, extremely outgoing. And I saw, and they had a bigger problem than I did at the time. I was probably heading there, but I just saw these transformations right in front of my eyes. It all just became very logical to me. Why would I want to wait around till I got a DUI or a divorce or, you know, a fell off a ladder while I was paying the house or something ridiculous like that. It was time to have a conversation with myself about maybe I should do what they had done. Right. That they had gotten sober or that they had stopped using as well. Exactly. I saw them go from lives of pretty much train wreck, you know, the story, hitting bottom. So both my brothers hit bottom and got better. And I don't know, it just made sense to me. I wanted to be like them. I saw their lives really were way better than mine. I was going out and getting drunk and being stupid and my head hurt. And (laughs) they did. So you saw your brothers actually crash and kind of meet that mythology of the bottom. You saw that with them and you realized, oh, wait a minute, I don't want to go there. I don't want to do that. And then there was another component in that I I was married at 26 and my father-in-law had disrupted my wife's family to a great degree. And so now I'm a husband right? and I'm thinking about having kids and I'm seeing how he is still really being just an extremely negative force in that family. And I said, I don't want to be that either. And so, yeah, it all just sort of came together. So then you made the decision, you know what? I got to get this out of my life. I got to stop. And you stopped. But not just like that. Not just like that. Okay. (laughs) Because here's something really interesting that we learned at Face It Together. And it really is common knowledge out there and tells us, but you have to sometimes stop and think about these things. I first went through a protracted trial and error process of harm reduction. Right. Okay. Yeah. I tried to cut back. Right. Right. Okay. I only drank on weekends. Yeah. I tried that and then I, but it didn't work for me. And finally I said, all right, I'm going to go for abstinence long-term. Abstinence long-term. So what would, you know, I think a lot of people who would listen to this or look at this would say, well, maybe you weren't really an addict then. Maybe you weren't really an alcoholic. I mean, if you were really an alcoholic, then you would go through that deep, dark, rock bottom to get better. So you must have not been an alcoholic then or an addict or whatever it is. I think a lot of people would say that. I think they would too. In no disrespect to them, they'd be wrong. I was indeed a on the spectrum for those that are familiar with the ASAM criteria. It wouldn't take one very many questions or very deep into that. I was just lower on the spectrum where a lot of people are One of the biggest aha moments came during one of the town hall meetings at Face It Together, where they were putting this organization together. And a gentleman got up and said that most people 
and I think the number is around 70% actually. Most people that at some time or could currently be diagnosed with addiction, some level of addiction, get better on their own. Most people. And I just said, well, I must have misheard that. And I went up to him, I talked to him. He said, no, it's true. Think about smoking. Nicotine is a very addictive chemical, very harmful, extremely harmful. Most people quit on their own. I have met so many people in my life, Dwayne, again, being so curious and just speaking with you. I didn't just get on the internet. I talked to a lot of people. I went out and just immersed myself. There are a lot of Dave Jansis out there. There's a lot of people who had serious, not rock bottom, but serious or semi-serious issues with some drug who somehow, uh, whether it be a, a friend, a brother, a wife, their family, a mentor, or maybe just by being you know, self-managed, quit on their own. Right. They quit. They quit on their own. So in some ways, you're wanting to help those people who maybe they're not all the way at the bottom, but they can get support, right? If it's problematic and... So just about everybody agrees that addiction is a chronic disease. Right. So chronic disease management, if you just go and Google chronic disease management, the pillars are detect it early and deal with it as quick as you can. We fail at that just miserably. Uh, when you detect it early, it's easier to treat. Right. But we just pass over that and wait until somebody is, you know, in jail or detox or something else. Then it's a lot harder to treat. It, it, we're all upside down. I love that. It's like, look, we can recognize the symptomology of these problems sooner, make it okay for people to get help and support so that it doesn't turn into these rock bottom scenarios of devastation and dying and death and destruction. Like we can recognize this earlier. We can do something about it. We can get people help. And I mean, I totally agree with you. I think there's so much stigma about addiction that people who may think they have a problem or in the beginning of developing an addictive issue don't get help when they should. And they can be so much easier. It is. There's just no doubt about it. And it's again with chronic disease management. If you are screened for diabetes, for example, which I'm sure you have been, almost everybody has, they're going to try to catch you in pre-diabetes when you're just looking like you're heading for trouble. At that point in time, the interactions are you know, relatively benign and easy to undertake. They're not that life-challenging. Would we wait around until somebody lost a limb that had diabetes? Of course not. It's ridiculous. It's crazy to even think that way. But that is the way, generally, we think about people with addiction. I think that's generally how we think in a lot of ways about our mental health, our health in general. Like we have to see the consequences really bad when there can be a lot of preemptive interventions that can help people. I'd agree with that. Absolutely. I also have heart disease runs rampant in our family and I was uh, diagnosed as prehypertension. Said, oh, your blood pressure is getting high. Thought, wow. A lot of other siblings and parents and stuff had issues with that. I want to have a conversation about that and I want to get on it right now. I don't want to wait until I'm, you know, you know, have a stroke or something. So one of the things that was coming to my mind was how do we help people early? How do we get this information to people early in who might be struggling with this addictive process before it gets bad? 
I think some major health systems are trying to wrap their heads around this. I saw in my own family doctor's office a little screening tool and had a conversation with him about it, just a general practitioner. That's where you would do it. You would have to get clinicians at the local level, at the boots on the ground level, nurses and doctors and PAs to, first of all, have a tool in hand that would identify somebody that was a problem drinker or, you know, maybe even another illicit drug user, and then be able to have really good conversations, non-judgmental conversations with them and flag them and pull them aside. And I saw something in my research years ago that said, one of the most respected voices to someone in that sphere, if you will, I like to call it pre-addiction. I coined that myself. I can never get things together to embrace it like I wish they would. But pre-addiction, uh, somebody who is clearly showing signs that they're heading for trouble, have a non-judgmental conversation with them in a clinical environment. It's powerful. Right. Okay. So tell me more about when you say non judgmental conversation, what would that look like? Well, that's what a peer is so good at, of course. And that's what Face It Together does is peer coaching. Right. Yeah. So I guess that just comes natural for me. It doesn't come natural for people in healthcare, unfortunately, unless they're peers, because they haven't been trained. So a non-judgmental conversation would simply go something like this. Dwayne, on our screening tool that we asked you to do, it's indicating that you drink at a level that's not, let's just say, not normal. It's above average. We'd love to have a conversation with you about it. We're concerned about that. And, you know, again, you open up the door in the right way, you're going to be able to interact sometimes with these people and then put them into a track where perhaps what's probably going to happen is they're probably going to go into a harm reduction uh, protocol. That's where most people want to go. And that's fine. And that's fine. That's on the way to recognizing the problem and dealing with it. Right. It kind of reminds me of the stages of change model where you might move someone from pre-contemplation where they're not thinking about it to contemplation going, oh, maybe I need to look at that a little bit more. Another one of the big aha moments in the development of Face It Together is when we had to sit down two or three years into our coaching experiences. We had individuals coming in the door and sitting down with a coach and saying, I know I drink too much, but I'm not ready to quit. Well, at that point in time, we had to ask ourselves, are we an abstinence-based organization? Do we only offer people a road to abstinence? And if that's true, I think we're missing something. And we came away with, no, that's just not the way it works. It's not logical. So when someone comes in and sits with us and says that, I just want to cut back, we say, great. It's great that you've recognized a problem and that you recognize you need to cut back. Let's enter that journey together. Here's some tips, here's some tools, and let's see how it goes. And kind of meet them where they're at. Exactly. And oftentimes, they just need somebody to recognize that that's normal, number one, for most people to want to do that first. Very few people go from problematic drinking, for example, to abstinence, just boom. Right, yeah. Yeah, they all go through that cycle. So we meet them in that cycle, walk usually through that cycle with them, and two or three sessions later, they're willing to talk about abstinence because harm reduction is difficult for a lot of people, especially those that have taken the step to come and meet with a coach. They're probably fairly well down the barrel, you might say, of needing some assistance. Right. If they're at that point where you know maybe they've had a conversation with their 
doctor about it. The doctors kind of pointed out, hey, you know, your drinking is above the normal range. And then they come to you. They're probably definitely in that contemplative stage of change and or maybe even into an active state of change to say, yeah, you know, I have to really look at this. Exactly. But everybody loves personal stories. And my favorite in this realm was the gentleman who said that to me. He said, I just want to cut back. And I said, great. That's I was there. I tried. So now I'm a peer in that arena too. I tried to cut back. I was a great cut backer. As a matter of fact, I was pretty darn good at it for a while. And I said, we can talk about cutting back and how that looks and what kind of tools you need to do that. And he just stopped me in mid-sentence. He says, Dave, I've tried it so many times. It never works. What I really want to do is quit. (laughs) Right. So, and that's powerful because then at that point they can own it themselves. I think when we're telling people to do things or like, this is how you should be, or this is how you should live, or you should be this way or that way, even if they might be really good ideas, when someone comes to that conclusion on their own and through the own process in a non-judgmental environment, that's a powerful change motivator. Exactly. We have a pretty much a standard philosophy at Face It Together. We rarely, if ever, tell our clients or members what to do. We just suggest. Right. I believe ultimately, you know, even when we're working with people, it is always going to be their choice of how they're going to handle their life and the decisions they make. And that we can, if we're in the helping profession, we can be there, support them, be there for them, help them bounce their ideas and their thoughts off of someone else so they can look at them and in an environment that, yeah, doesn't have shame, doesn't have judgment. In those environments, that's where we can do our most growth. And then what we did at Face It Together, that a couple of things we've done that have been just extremely progressive and helpful is we knew that these peer conversations were powerful. Well, they're powerful in all sorts of chronic disease management everywhere. Peers are powerful. But we employed science. First of all, we embraced harm reduction. We embraced motivational interviewing and everything that are, you know, there's a lot of recovery coaches around the country that we took that and expanded on it. And then we also developed a tool called a recovery capital index. We can actually, Dwayne, measure someone's addiction wellness. Then we took it one step further because I can tell you this, I can say that we have this tool, but it's pretty meaningless in the world of science and we are a very science-based organization. We took it to a local research firm, Sanford Research, here in South Dakota and had it validated. It's an instrument. We had it published in the South Dakota Journal of Medicine. We have a tool that Face It Together that can accurately measure someone's addiction wellness. So tell me about addiction wellness. What does that mean? So addiction wellness, interestingly, for a lot of people who are you know, not familiar with addiction, is measured way more in terms of how you basically are fitting into the world and a lot less about how much drug you may or may not be using. Now, sometimes abstinence is absolutely a pivotal part of that. Oftentimes it is. But what's more important to the individual and to the world that they live in is their behaviors and their ability to hold a job and get an education and have good housing and have good relationships and perhaps have a spiritual relationship that's meaningful to them. All of those things are measured in and more in our recovery capital index. Right. So it sounds like what you're moving the conversation from are you drinking or not drinking or drugging or not drugging or acting out or not acting out to how is your life? Exactly. And that's a more reliable indicator of how they're doing in a whole life. 
And just being sober, I mean, what I can say for a lot of people, people who maybe stop their behaviors or their addictive behaviors or stop their alcohol use or drug use, that they can still be very in a lot of pain. They can still be dealing with depression. They can still be dealing with anxiety. And just because they're sober doesn't necessarily mean that their wellness is better. Sometimes, not all the time. Yeah, you could be on our senior leadership team with that last paragraph. That's exactly right. We recognize that addiction wellness is a really wide spectrum. People who are happy and healthy and and all right with their world, if you will, typically don't want to become intoxicated, inebriated, you know, and basically check out. And they're not happy there, and that's why they're engaging with us and wanting to change. And so we work really hard on the behaviors and what the recovery capital index does for us as peers is indicate where they're doing well, where they're getting stronger or weaker, where they're not doing well. It gives us a great tool to have conversations with our clients about their journey. Right. And I think I love that because I think when people are doing well in all those aspects of their life, addiction, why do you want to leave if you're doing well and you're happy? Why do you want to leave it with a substance or a drug or you don't want to leave it? You know, you don't want to change it because you're well, it's usually I think we use these behaviors and these addictions when we have some kind of internalized pain, we don't know how to get rid of. I don't think there's any doubt about it. My lived experience was, again, not being deep down the spectrum, not having had great tragedies or whatever, but I still felt, and that was the thing that was so confusing to me, is how can I feel this much better? And all I did was quit drinking. It was That just boggled mine because I felt, and still do, feel exponentially better than during the 16 years where I was uh, putting alcohol. Yeah. Yeah. We don't deal with life when we're in our addiction. We don't make it better. So I love having you on, Dave. I love this conversation. As we kind of run to our time, what would be one thing, if anybody's listening to this podcast, they're either have a loved one struggling or they're struggling themselves or they think they may have a problem, what would you want to tell them? What would be the one thing you'd want to say to them? I would say that's something that was pivotal in my own awareness was really stuck with me. I heard on the radio, I remember where I was driving down the street and the person on the radio said, if you think you have a drinking problem, you probably do. Oof. Well, I thought I might have a drinking problem and I did. And I think that's probably the case if anyone is out there and they are saying something similar to that. Geez, I'm just not right with myself. I wonder if alcohol or pot or whatever the drug might be, is a part of this. I would ask them to reach out, not just to one person or two people, but to anyone or a number of sources and just explore it and find somebody you can have a non-judgmental conversation with. Go on our website at wefaceittogether.org and you can chat or send us a message, uh, interact with us. Their doctor You might get some bad advice. I think you need to be ready for that too, I would tell them. You might get some advice that's really not that helpful and kind of confusing. And so I would say continue to poke around and explore. Look around, get the information you need to make the changes you want. Exactly. Dave, thank you so much. We will definitely put the links to your website on theaddictedmind.com. And Dave, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you, Dwayne. I really enjoyed it. 
All right, everyone. Thank you for listening. All the show notes will be at theaddictedmind.com forward slash 77. Once again, please rate and review us in iTunes. I really appreciate that a lot. And I love to read the reviews as well. Don't forget, join our Facebook group, go to Facebook and type in the Addicted Mind podcast, click join. That would be awesome. And one last call to any of you out there. If you want to share your story, go to theaddictedmind.com, click on the link on the side, share your story and tell us a little bit about how you have gotten through addiction and the one thing that has really helped you. And that may be featured on the Addicted Mind podcast. And so I'd love to hear you guys. All right. Until the next episode, I hope that you have a wonderful, fulfilling day. It's Erin. And I'm Michaela, and we're the hosts of the Two Sober Girls podcast, and we are on a mission to spill the wild truth about sobriety. Forget the rosé all day cliche. Sobriety is flipping amazing. Absolutely. It's not just about quitting the drink. It's a gift you give yourself and your loved ones. So what are you waiting for? Break up with that old toxic relationship with alcohol and let us show you the possibilities. And here's the thing. Everything your precious heart desires becomes way easier without the influence of alcohol. We're not just two sober girls. We're also wellness coaches. We're here to show you how to optimize health, lifestyle, and beauty, feel sexy and alive as F. So stay tuned because we're rolling out new episodes every Monday, wherever you get your podcasts and trust us. They have your name written all over them. We can't wait to share the magic of sobriety and wellness with you. Subscribe to Two Sober Girls Podcast today and come follow us on Instagram for behind the scenes action and send us a DM. We can't wait to meet you.